This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The great British novelist, poet, and short story writer A.S. Byatt died on November 18, 2023, at the age of 87. Born Antonia Drabble and sister to novelist Margaret Drabble, A.S. Byatt spent her early professional life as a teacher before becoming a full-time writer in 1983. In 1978, she began the first of a tetralogy, The Virgin in the Garden. Her 1990 novel, Possession, probably her best-known work, won the Booker Prize that year and was turned into a successful film by Neil de Butte. Her novella, Morpho Eugenia, in the collection Angels and Insects, was adapted into a film titled Angels and Insects in 1995. I had the chance to interview A.S. Byatt twice, this first time on January 27, 2003 in the KPFA studios while she was on tour for her novel, A Whistling Woman. I would interview her once more in 2010 for her Booker Prize-nominated novel, The Children's Book. Over the course of her career, she wrote ten novels, the last of which was Ragnarok, The End of the Gods in 2011 along with six short story collections, the two novella collection titled Angels and Insects, and nine essays and biographies, according to Wikipedia. Her final work was a short story collection, Medusa's Ankles, published in 2021. My guest is A.S. Byatt, whose latest novel is A Whistling Woman. This is the fourth volume in a tetralogy that includes The Virgin in the Garden, Still Life, and Babel Tower. A.S. Byatt is also the author of two novellas, Angels and Insects, and a best-selling novel here called Possession, which is the story of Randolph Henry Ashe and Christabel Lamott. And we'll go into that in a little bit. But first, let's start by talking about this four-volume set. This is the concluding volume. This is absolutely the concluding volume. I I am deeply amazed to have got as far as the end, and I don't intend ever to write any more of it. When you wrote The Virgin in the Garden, did you have any idea you would be working on a multiple series? Yes, I did. I had a plan right from the beginning to write four novels that were interlinked. I usually say, and this is true, that it was because I was a woman with two small children and very little time to get it pen and paper. So if I planned out a very large project, I could do all the thinking and then in the end do the writing. And partly also I was reading Proust and wanted to know what you could do with space. But it's also true, I now remember that it was fashionable in Britain at that time to write series of novels. There was C.P. Snow, who has been lost without trace, and Anthony Powell, who I think was a very successful writer of a serial novel. And other names I have here, Doris Lessing. Indeed, yes. And Iris Murdoch. Yes, I, Iris, I don't think. She she wrote an enormous number of novels, but I don't think any of them connected with any other. Though characters did occasionally reappear from time to time. There's a quote from you saying that you were influenced, as you say, by Proust, but by his idea of a novel running alongside a life, meaning, I would guess, that there's a, a certain 
parallel, though the character is not you. There is kind of a parallel here. Talk about your intentions regarding the parallel. I find it, unlike Proust, almost impossible to write in the first person. I don't like a novel in which the central character is the narrator and the narrator is an alter ego for the author. And what I liked about Proust's book about à la recherche was the idea that he created a kind of what Henry James called a loose baggy monster into which anything he thought about anything could be put. He could put science in, he could put philosophy in, he put the First World War in as it happened. I mean, he was going along writing and the war happened, so he wrote it in. And I, I, I meant more that I wanted a form like that. It was my historical life I was interested in. I have taken things, certain small things from my own life and um, my heroine I don't like calling her my heroine, but the central character in A Whistling Woman does, as I did, teach literature to art students in the 1960s. And many of her experiences as a teacher of art students are quite close to things I experienced, like getting a letter from the jewellery design students saying, please, can you make English literature more relevant to the study of jewellery design, which struck me as very funny. Uh, (laughs) But I don't think any of the characters feel exactly my emotions and the big things they do bear very little relation to my life. You did not do any BBC work in the 60s or did you? I did in fact. Not in, I wasn't all that successful. I did quite a lot of radio which I've always enjoyed and the BBC is a wonderful thing for allowing you to talk seriously. I did little bits of early television enough to know what it was like to be in the studio And there was a wonderful parlour game in the 60s on British television with writers guessing quotations. We had an actor who read quite difficult quotations from Melville or Hawthorne or Freud, and all four writers had to guess who wrote them. I don't think they dare do that now. Too highbrow. Right now, um, virtually anything is too highbrow for television. Yeah. But Frederica, your protagonist, main character, the central character in the sense that she's approximately your age, As the series progresses, is there a further forking between A.S. Byatt and Frederica, or was that all planned out at the beginning, say, in the 70s? Um, Most of it was planned out. It's hard to remember back in precise detail, though I keep compulsive constructional notebooks so it can be dug back again. What I meant to do in the early 70s or late 60s was to write a series of novels that constantly moved out from the small group of the nuclear family into bigger groups like educational institutions and then into the whole sort of political situation in Britain. As I kept doing that, I kept needing more main characters who did things which I don't think I knew much about when I started. I think I always knew, for instance, that science was something that was very important in the world and didn't usually get into novels. And I did do a lot of scientific reading even before it became what all writers were doing. And bit by bit, I began to say I needed characters who were serious scientists. And then they became also part of what you call the kaleidoscopic sort of point of view in the novel. So I don't think I'd have thought exactly in 1965 or 6 that I was going to have a woman scientist as a main character 
in this novel, but by about 1980, I would have known that I was. And you always knew that you would eventually finish this uh, tetralogy. No, I think for long periods of my life, I was very afraid I wouldn't finish it. Um, I had four children of whom one died, which threw me for several years. It was not an easy thing to live with. And I taught university full-time for 11 years, which is actually enough of a job with, for a woman with three children, an hour and a half's commute. So I seriously didn't know I would finish it. And the other problem I had was that I began to think of other novels that I more wanted to write. And Possession was a novel that came into my head, and suddenly I saw what it was going to be, and I thought, if I put this off till I finish this quartet of novels, it'll have died again. And I sat and agonized for about a couple of months, and then I thought, oh, come on, go for it. I'll write the Victorian novel first, and then I'll go back to the quartet if I still can. So it was as dicey as that. But I hate unfinished business. It would have made me feel perpetually unhappy if I hadn't finished it. The primary focus of a whistling woman to me is the times of the 60s, coming at it from a particular angle. The angle that I remember from being a student in the 60s was the angle angle of drugs and rock and roll. The angle, now these people are somewhat older than me, so their perspective is different. There isn't a whole lot of music in this. I remember the 60s being very devoted to music. Now, was it that way in Britain for you? It was that way in Britain, but not for me. And you have hit on the thing that most worries me about this novel. If I was a greater novelist, I would have been able to do the music as well. The music ought to be there. The best I could do was write some rather clever in inverted commas, pop lyrics for the students when they march from the anti-university to break up the university. I wrote some lyrics with rhythms in and I invented a pop poet of the kind of whom we had many. But the truth is, I can't stand loud noise. I can't be in loud pop music without becoming rather frantic and hysterical. And so it all passed me by. (laughs) apart from the Beatles, who sang comprehensible words in elegant voices, and I listened to them with intense pleasure, and that was about it. Well, the good news about that is that um, a lot of people remember specifically when things came out, so by avoiding that subject, you avoid anachronism, so maybe it was to some degree helpful not to do that. Well, I suppose it was, but it was a cop-out. I I think all I can do is come up front and say it's a cop-out. If there should have been characters, I I mean, most of the characters in this this book, as you rightly say, are older than the kind who were dancing. And from a distance, Frederica sees the students dancing. And in Babel Tower, she does go to a kind of um, rock music experience and feels as I felt when I once went that she is being blasted through. She's a kind of physical entity which is being smashed up all her molecules and corpuscles by sound and and she feels very threatened, which is what I always felt. I don't like group experiences and I don't like losing my sense of understanding what's going on. I don't let go very easily into great waves of banging about. Um, And when I did go to dances and things... I began to hurt in the ears. That was it. There is a line, I think it may be Frederica who says it, uh, 
that uh, as someone who for whom music has very little uh, very little meaning. So there is that in there. But what does have meaning is the university versus anti-university, which was very much a debate then. It's now pretty dead. And religion versus the New Age, or this is pre-New Age, so you had Manichaeism, you had um, Gnosticism. You go into great depth there. At the time, was that kind of a focus in the late 60s for you, or is it something you studied for the writing of the book? Um, both, which has been rather wonderful. Um, I knew a lot of, partly because I had a Quaker upbringing, but I knew a lot of people who belonged to very serious religious groups that were trying to push out the frontiers of religious experience. They were trying to loosen things up. I knew a lot of Death of God theologians, partly because there was a great publisher called James Mitchell, who published a lot of religious books and got me to contribute to a book called The God I Want. And I met all the other contributors to that who were psychoanalysts and scientists and poets and writers. And there was an enormous amount of a sense that a new religion might be being about to be born. And then you feed into that things like R.D. Lang and the divided self and a kind of drug culture psychoanalysis thing that was going on, which... I was interested in and was very, very frightened of. At that stage, I used to know Alison Lurie reasonably well. And Alison would come over and report in her wry way on encounter groups on the West Coast and things that were going on in America. And I never knew whether, for instance, Alison really believed in astrology, which strikes me as a lunatic thing to do. But she did cast my horoscope and said, you are very odd. Only two people have no aspects to the sun. One is you and the other is Scott Fitzgerald. So I said, thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Did she ever talk about James Merrill? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And um, all that was very interesting. (laughs) I'm sure it was. Did you ever get a chance to read Changing Light at, at Sandover? Not yet, no. Not yet. It's on my shelf. I have not gotten to no, it No, no, I either. will. I, I do so much reading for research that all my reading for, for... I tend to focus my reading around what object I'm now interested in, which is the early days of socialism in Britain, having just done the 60s. Getting back to, to the 60s and a whistling woman, there is, for me, a certain sense of irony in reading this book in 2003 with the politics of the time and the philosophical bent of the time. Uh, and almost a, a certain tragedy that the arguments in there seem to have flown away. Did you find that when you were writing the book, or were you so immersed in it that it served as kind of an escape from what's happening now? Um, no, it wasn't an escape. It struck me that many of the things that were discussed in the 60s were never resolved and are still active today. And of course, in the present political situation, one thinks very hard about what everybody felt about Vietnam. I mean, I come from pacifists who decide my father was not a pacifist, but fought in the Second World War. So I've always been very ambivalent. I don't like automatic pacifism, but principled opposition to a war that seems to be doing more harm than good is another matter. But I remember all that. And I think nobody ever sorted out the moral structures. Everybody sort of felt in the 60s that if you threw off all restraint and everybody did what came naturally and spontaneously, 
and was what they most wanted to do, the world would somehow produce a utopia. And my view always was that it was going to produce something very frightening. What it did produce was Charles Manson. And I remember it producing Charles Manson. But if you say Charles Manson to my children's generation, they say who? But nevertheless, that sense of, as it were, orgiastic openness and creativeness and overexcited communal emotion, it almost always tipples over into danger and destruction and battling and breaking up and violence. And the good thing about writing my 1960s novel in 2002 was that there was a lot of research I could do on how this had happened in group after group. As I was reading this book, I kept thinking about the differences between America and England. Uh, it struck me that, that there was a certain seriousness to the philosophical debate in England that was not necessarily true in America because in Amer America was so concerned with Vietnam at the time. When you're, you were writing this, how did you try to balance that, the fact that these events were going on? I, because the book does not take place in London, but takes place in a very isolated environment, and in particular in a cult, which is an even more isolated environment, the question is, how do you balance the rest of the world with this almost arc novel that you've constructed? Well, two possible answers to that, and I don't know which is right. Um, one is that the enclosed world of the cult, to a certain extent, can be seen as a paradigm. I was very struck in the 1960s by Doris Lessing saying that it ought to be possible to write a novel about the life of a group as it is to write a novel about the life of an individual. And Doris was a great joiner of groups. She joined group after group after group. She joined the Communist Party. And then she joined these very serious psychoanalytic religious things. And then she joined the Sufis. I joined nothing. I just stood and watched. Doris marched up and down in every march the was, and then wrote some of the most ironic and wicked descriptions of how people need to be on a march in order to have a nice day off and a good love-in that I've ever read. And I think my novel, in a sense, in the sense that the marching becomes its own end. This is only one thing you can observe. Um, the Vietnam War was a, a global political issue. It has had large numbers of novels of its own. I acknowledge at the edges of my novel that it is there and it is a huge problem. What I noticed about Britain at the time was that the British, the young British, were very unhappy that they hadn't got a problem. The French had real problems with the structure of their universities. They had had problems with Vietnam. The British marched up and down in solidarity with the people who were against the Vietnamese war. But our government had not taken us into it. It wasn't our war. We were, march we were, as it were, auxiliarily marching on behalf of those Americans who believed America was doing the wrong thing. And in the student revolutions, on the whole, we were marching on behalf of the French. I don't think we understood that at the time because there wasn't much wrong with the administrative structure of our universities. And a lot of it was simply ludicrous if you were anywhere close to it. I had a colleague when I was teaching at University College London who had been a student there, and she said, we all put on our leather jackets and we marched along the corridor and we said to Professor Kermode, 
we've come to confront you. And he said, well, please come in. And he said, well, what have you got to say? And she said, we said, we've come to confront you. And then we couldn't remember <laughs> what we had come to confront him about. I mean, she's now a distinguished Renaissance scholar. But there she was in those days in her black leather jacket, feeling confrontation was de rigueur. And England was, in a sense, I think, comic like that rather than really politically alive or anything really happening. Which is one of the reasons then that beyond that, there are not the debates about um, Marxism or rather Trots the Trotskyites versus the Stalinists and da-da-da-da-da that might have been encountered on American universities at the same time. No, I think there were such people and there were such debates, but they were in a very small part of the country. And on the whole, they were tautological and they were derivative. They were either derivative from the French or from the Americans. There's an absolutely wonderful book by a writer called David Cote, C-A-U-T-E, called 1968. And Cote is a Marxist who was a fellow of all souls, a very serious political thinker, a very good novelist. And he, on the whole, sees the British behavior in these matters as ludicrous although he taught in the British Anti-University himself. And he, he said most of the courses went on about one day and then the lavatories didn't work and there wasn't any food and <laughs> began to smell very bad and people came and gave lectures on how nobody should ever give lectures and after a bit everybody just went away. I had thought it had lasted for years. It only lasted a few weeks. But the memory, the memory expands it. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it did at the time. I thought it was an institution that was really there. A.S. Byatt, I'd like to broaden the discussion to some of the things that appear in, in, in a number of your works. You've talked about how you try, you've tried to keep metaphor out of your books, yet metaphor rises to the surface in A Whistling Woman, not merely by the title, but also um, use of blood images, use of fire images, the stories within stories that appear in all of your works uh, from uh, Babel Tower on through to this, how conscious is the use of metaphor? And when you're writing these stories, how focused are you on the stories as analogies or metaphors for the larger work? Very, very much so. I'm a very, very careful artist. I, I know it looks as though my books are sloppy and go all over the place. But in fact, um, you used the word kaleidoscope, which is one of my very favorite words, a bit back in another context. I see my narratives as a kaleidoscope. You twist the thing and suddenly you see the same preoccupations appearing in terms of a kind of primeval fairy story, or you see them appearing in terms of a little bit of um, historical narrative. And in a sense, the little narratives are metaphors of the big narratives. And one family is an analogy for another family. And then blood is both a thing we all have, and particularly particular to each story and each place. Um, I, I did a lot of work on the actual physiology of consciousness about the brain and how the brain constructs the patterns with which we think. And I was reading a book about the cybernetics groups in the 50s, and somebody said, we enjoy puns because they're places where two lines of nervous communication, two sort of sets of coding 
momentarily cross and you can't decide which one you're looking at. And I suddenly thought that's why we like metaphor, which is something I've been wondering ever since I was a child. Why do we like to think of things in terms of another thing? You know, why are we excited to take a banal one if we say a pregnant woman is a great ship? I mean, why, isn't, why don't we just say it was a pregnant woman? Why is it suddenly moving to see all the... And I think it is actually something to do with things crossing in the brain. And for a moment, you don't know which thing you're thinking about. And you get this overexcitement. It's, it's overstimulated. Anyway, it's a nice theory. I shall write a short story with it in. <laughs> I notice that when people praise great writing, to some degree, they're praising the fact that something old had been said in a new way, which brings in the idea of metaphor. I mean, if, if pregnant woman as a ship has never been used before and it comes in, it resonates. But that's what poetry is about as well. Yes, well, in fact, part of my problem as a novelist is that almost all the things I really love are poems. And when I think about language, I think about poems. I think about Wallace Stevens, who is, must have been one of the greatest metaphor makers ever. I think about Coleridge, I think about Tennyson, I think about Shakespeare above all, and I think, what is it about their language? And the other thing is, if you take a metaphor like a, woman, a pregnant woman as a ship, it's been done before, but you can make the ship a little bit more real so that it's your ship and nobody's ever seen that ship in that context, and, um, and you, have a, you have a certain duty to do it. There aren't many new things to say. G.K. Chesterton once said about Browning, he tries to describe new experiences, and sometimes he pushes it too far. He said, if you tried to tell a man about the pleasure of eating brass fenders, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, you actually need things that aren't new as well. You need the deep channels in which born and we all live and we all die, and we go through the same thought processes all our ancestors went through. And since our time is finite, we can only get a certain amount in, and a lot of it has to be stuff that was already thought. So what you need to do is connect what you do onto what has been done by other people differently or understood by other people who told it to you. Someone could go to extremes where what you have is the idea of doing something new that doesn't resonate because it also has to resonate. It can't just be something new. No, I think, I think you know, in, in our lifetime, we've got far too stuck on the idea that it has to be original. It has to be new. It has to be never seen before. And this crept into the culture, an idea that if you do quote or pick up something that somebody sa said and put it in a new context, then nobody says, again, how clever, which they would have done in the day of T.S. Eliot, most of whose words were taken from somebody else's words. They say, oh, dear, it's plagiarism. It's stealing. They don't understand the way a whole literature or any other art is made up of a network of images which are shared and you take them and change them a bit. What is your feeling about postmodern works then, works that reflect back upon previous elements to such a degree that you can't appreciate the new work without understanding the old? Well, I'm quite happy with them because I like knowing the old. I'm not happy with them when they try to prove that the world is actually only a structure of reflections on things and that nothing is real and that the only real thing is a text of words on a page. And you tend to get that. You get it quite badly with Umberto Eco's more recent work, although I think he balanced it absolutely beautifully 
in The Name of the Rose. I mean, The Name of the Rose is a postmodern work which is self-consciously artificial. It refers you back to 12th century theology. And I think it's real because of the blood, actually. He said, I wanted to kill a monk. That's why I wrote it. It's got this bit of real violence in Echo. He wanted to write a story about killing a monk, and he did. Whereas the last book is just full of kind of papery games with um, Byzantine stories, and none of it is real enough to make me quite happy. Yeah, I I wonder uh, about that. Um, I think from my perspective, looking at Name of the Rose, what I see is he's hung Sherlock Holmes on this 14th century you know, monastery or whatever century was monastery and was able to create what he wanted within the context of this Sherlock Holmes story. You remove the story and what you've got is Bordolino, which is a yeah. bunch of just images and it's little exactly. stories. Yeah. Um, no, it's the vulgarity of Sherlock Holmes that saves the name of the rose. When I say vulgarity, I am not meaning anything other than praise. Sherlock Holmes is a straight detective story and a powerful, slightly stereotyped character. And that keeps Echo within the realm of the real novel as well as all the... I mean, all the postmodernism in The Name of the Rose works absolutely beautifully. But Bordolino, he just... Who was it? It was Andre Malraux described Shakespeare as beating in the void his luminous wings in vain. I felt that Bordolino was just like that, beating in the void. A.S. Byatt, what it, what you're saying and what I'm hearing is your understanding in all of your work that on some level there's got to be that story. There's got to be something going on. You can attach whatever clothes you want, but there has to be the clothesline. Absolutely. I didn't understand that when I was 18, 19. I grew up in a world of university English where we were taught to admire the novel for not telling a story. E.M. Forster said, oh dear, yes, the novel tells a story, and now let's forget the story. Um, we were brought up on Virginia Woolf as a, a The Waves, and The Waves does just about tell a story. And then we had the French Nouveau Roman, and the French said, really, it's far, far too vulgar to tell a consecutive story, and we must defeat every narrative expectation, or we're not grown-up people. And I did have to sit down and think out for myself from scratch that actually this is all nonsense. The world tells a story. We were born. We have sex. Some of us have children. We get ill. We travel. There is a war. And then we die. And that's a consecutive linear narrative. And I think any good novel can do almost anything as long as it at least remembers the clothesline. And there could even be two clotheslines, as it appears there is in a book like Possession. Yes, uh, the two clotheslines, which finally get knotted together. Well, perhaps there are three, and then you can make it into a plat, and it goes along as one line. But um, if you've got two, they must either, in some ways, mirror each other or be a metaphor for each other. It would be dreadful if they just diverge. I've actually read novels where that happens and you walk away scratching your head. And I was just wondering as I spoke whether I was right and whether it might be rather a clever thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) You don't find out till you get to the end that it doesn't make sense. But I'm not sure. I think that's just a game, though. I've, I've just read a novel by a good friend and a really good writer in Britain, and he has played a dreadful trick. He has caused his main character to send another character scuba diving 
somewhere in the Pacific in order to find out the name of somebody who might have been going to murder somebody. And then, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but I was so let down as a reader, I sent him furious emails. And he said, listen, you're meant to be frustrated. I said, no, but you don't understand. You've broken the contract one step too far. You've really hurt me. You can frustrate me in certain ways, and I will take pleasure in it. But this one's too deep. I am frustrated. But you're not going to listen. Uh, Lawrence Block, who's an American uh, mystery writer, once wrote a novel, and obviously I won't say which one it was, where it turns out that the murder victim was the victim of random crime. Yeah. You need to write that very well in order for the reader not to wish to throw things at you. But you could do that. It could be wonderful because, of course, a lot of stories in the world are like that. A.S. Byatt, you mentioned before that you became obsessed with the story and you put aside what you were doing and decided to write Possession. I'd like you to talk about that obsession. How did it come about? The obsession to write Possession? Yeah. Well... I have um, evidence that I actually thought of possession in 1970 because I wrote in a newspaper review of a book that I had the idea of writing a book about scholars and poets in which you wouldn't know if the poet possessed the scholar or the scholar possessed the poet. At that stage, I only had the title. And the truth is that when I read The Name of the Rose, which is why I'm so interested in it, I suddenly saw what it was I hadn't understood about how possession should be written and that it should be not a kind of ghost novel about guessing who poets were through scholarly texts, but a really rich detective story sort of novel in which a real story is really discovered. And I I enjoyed myself so much because I am a good reader of popular fiction as long as it's well written. I used to love Georgette Hare. I love the detective stories of Marjorie Allingham. And I thought, at one level, this book has got to be exactly like that. And then I can bring in all sorts of things about the Victorian world and postmodernism. But And then I began to see how to do it. And, and as I said earlier, I, I knew I would go off the boil. I knew I would lose it if I didn't write it then. And at that stage, I hadn't really made much practice at writing with several voices. And the final decision with possession was actually to write the poetry as opposed to leaving it there to be guessed at or imagined because it was meant to be such a concrete book that it would have been cheating not to have real poems in it. When you were working on it because you had the ideas there, did you ever feel anywhere along the way that you were losing it, or were you able to maintain your focus? It's quite a long book. No, it was very, very easy to write once I got the chronology right. The major difficulty was pacing the discoveries by the two modern characters, Roland and Maud, the research students. I suddenly realized they couldn't find all the information about Randolph, Henry Ashe, and Christabel Lamotte anywhere near the beginning of the book, or there wouldn't have been any more plot. So my real difficulty was the time when I was thinking up reasons why I would send them to France in um, a cross-channel steamer. My French translator was really sort of amazed because when they were making the film of the book, they sent 30 lorries (laughs) across the channel, you know, across the wide bit of the channel in the same cross-channel steamer. But... um, Once I got going, it wrote itself. It had a sort of 
It was almost uncanny the way it just unfolded itself, as though it had always been there in my head. What is the origins of um, the first story in Angels and Insects, the one called uh, Morpho Eugenia? Um, it was an idea I had about how I would like to write a television play. And what I wanted to do was write a television play about, as it were, the rigorous society of a Victorian household with lots and lots of little black servants scurrying up and down passages. And I wanted to compare that to an ant heap. And I thought, if you wrote a television play, you could film both the people and the ants so that they looked the same size on the little square box screen. And one of my obsessions is that nobody's ever really written television art considering how much television there is, you'd think somebody could make a work of art that used the fact that you've got a fairly small screen, but they write for it as though it was a big screen in a cinema. They they don't seem to know how to make new works. Anyway, that was my idea. I would make an ant heap stroke Victorian house. So I went to my agent and said, I want to write a television play. And he said, all right, write a short story and I'll sell the film rights. So I went back and wrote it and it grew rather And it was always meant to be a sort of grotesque, wicked kind of gothic story about Darwinian science and and the decadent English aristocracy. And the perfect film director happened to hit upon it and made a wonderful film of it. A spectacular film. Oh, I think it it was a brilliant film. And um, we are hoping to make a film of the other story in there, which could be just as brilliant with a sort of seance and visionary bodies, because they could now do that. They always say that a novella of that length is the best thing to adapt because it is the the closest you'll get to the two or two and a half hours you can put on screen. No, I feel that, and I feel that everything got in that needed to get in, and Philip Haas even indeed invented a piece of plot that isn't in my novella that ought to have been because it would have made the novella better, and it certainly makes the film a, a lot better which is the death of Lady Alabaster. He invented that. And um, I think he he made his own work, which was his own comment on things. And I think he's even more wry about the English aristocracy than I am. But it had such sort of brilliant visual inventiveness and the costumes were so extraordinary. All the performances were good. It was um, it was a great success. And I do hope that he, he's got a wonderful script for the other story about Tennyson's sister trying to call up spirits at a seance in Margate. And I think that would have exactly the same quality of black comedy and and meaningfulness. How do you feel about the film of Possession? I enjoyed it. I thought bits of it were very, very beautiful, and it did wonderful things with pieces of the landscape that I know and love. And and I thought Neil Labute really did a very good job in making a screen a screenplay out of a book that actually isn't easy to film. Morpho Eugenia was designed as a visual film, and um, Possession is a wordy novel about words, which is a very, very difficult... And I thought he did very well in making... A, I think he's a very fine playwright, and he made a wonderful screenplay. My only f- worry about it is that when the film finally came out... I think they had taken out of what they filmed that bit too much. I think it's gone that bit too thin. And I know it was all there. You know, I've even seen bits of it being filmed. If it could have only been a quarter of an hour longer with material that they did have, I would have felt happier. 
when I saw the longer version of Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. that was on DVD that was about 40 minutes longer, it felt shorter. It felt like a better movie. Yeah, well, you see, I think this one yeah. was a really rich movie at some point before it got finally cut. And I think it's still a, a you know, a good movie. But every now and then you can feel places where they've put in a scene that goes very mm-hmm. fast instead of a scene which I know from having read the script actually gave room for people to be proper characters and have little interactions. And I was particularly sorry in the graveyard scene where you suddenly get four faces peering over the top of a tombstone. And the one they'd written was so rich and so funny and had things in that I hadn't written that that I really would like to have seen. I wanted to see it. Well, who knows? Maybe there'll be an A.S. Byatt cut for a DVD. One never knows. It would be nice. I would like to have seen. I would like to have seen the director's cut. You know, before before it was reduced to the right length for cinemas. Well, maybe you will. I mean, this is happening more and more. A.S. Byatt, I'd like to. Um, actually, what I'd like to do is see. I may not be able. This. I may not pull this off. In which case. This material may never see the light of day, but um, one thing I do is I do small segments for our morning program, which more focus on politics and the political scene. So if I can ask you a few questions about that, and you know, we could relate it a little bit to your writing, so it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, because you are, after all, a novelist. A.S. Byatt, you're a student of culture. You're a student of politics. It's obvious from your work. How do you view what's happening in the United States or in the world today? Uh, how do you see that? Do you th- see things absolutely out of control from the Bush administration? How, what is your appraisal and how, uh, how do you feel Tony Blair is relating to all this? Um, I think this is the time in the whole of my life when I've been most politically distressed, partly because I'm old enough now to care more and understand more. I see that the world is in trouble because of what happened on September the 11th. I spent a lot of time at the Frankfurt Book Fair arguing with some Germans and some Austrians in favor, I was in favor, of striking at the Taliban. I felt that it would not be human to expect this administration or any administration not to try to do something Beyond that, I cannot see what Iraq has got to do with the war on terrorism. As far as I can see, if they have got evidence that it poses a really significant threat either to the United States or or to Europe, why can't they tell us? I mean, you hear all sorts of theories, which I won't dare because they're only theories. Um, I feel really quite frightened as a European about the degree of contempt for the United Nations that this administration is showing in this country. As far as Tony Blair goes, I think he is an honest man and he is a politician of principle. And I think he has made the calculation that the only thing Britain can do that makes any sense is to support the United States and to go along with it It is my belief, which may or may not be right, that he had something to do with the fact that the administration even bothered to take the thing to the United Nations at all. I think he has been offering real support in public and trying to put a break on in private. This may be only my view. I think there is nothing he can do except 
take British soldiers to war when the United States goes to war, and I feel heartbroken about it. I think the number of people who are going to die and the the real disruption that's going to happen in the Middle East in ways that I do not think any of us can foresee is really terrifying. That's what I think. Your latest novel, A Whistling Woman, takes place in the 1960s when Vietnam was happening. Do you see parallels between that era and today? You would think that people today would think about then. I I mean, I did see, in fact, a comment in the New York Times yesterday saying, you know, America then went into a war that it felt to be a good and virtuous war to get rid of a very bad system and ended up with chaos and distress and the American public in a state of great rage. I think somebody should be thinking very carefully about those parallels because it it's at least 50% possible that, that that will happen again, that chaos and distress and considerable rage on the part of the American public will happen. One of the things I've been trying to think out is how absolute a nation is if it's run by a dictator. I mean, it seemed to me perfectly clear when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait that he had broken the law of nations and that... George Bush Sr. was absolutely right to go and say, hey, stop, you go no further. You are a belligerent dictator and you are doing things you ought not. But that now applies to him. He has done nothing else. Why should we go and invade him? Equally, once you start saying that a nation isn't an absolute entity, that you can't invade without certain sorts of cause, I mean... Who else are we going to go and put down because we don't like their behavior? There is no reason for not putting down Mr. Mugabe, though I don't see anybody as offering to do so. (laughs) It would seem, as it were, if you're behaving logically, which I don't think many people are, it would seem that they ought to go and attack North Korea, which has said it's got nuclear weapons and intends to start reproducing them. I am really frightened by the way in which nobody has made the case properly, including Tony Blair, who is a very, very good talker. Nobody has really made the case for attacking Iraq in particular, now in particular. And yet there is a very strong emotional connection. The American administration was attacked on its own, America was attacked in its own major city in an absolutely appalling way. And it looked around for revenge, and it took revenge. But I still get the feeling it's, it still feels vengeful, and it's trying to think who next to take revenge on. And Saddam Hussein is the easiest. How um, common is your viewpoint in England, do you think? I think it's most people's viewpoint. Um, I wrote an article about who are the Europeans in the New York Times. I wrote it in the summer and then added some because it appeared in the autumn. I have yet to meet a European who is in favor of this war, any single one European. I was traveling in sort of Norway, Denmark, Germany, France, Switzerland, Italy, nobody. I have met two people in Britain who are in favor of this war. I have actually spoken to two. One is the ex-editor of The Times, who has his own... And the other is one of Mrs. Thatcher's ex-ministers. 
And he put a very good case to me for attacking Saddam Hussein over lunch. And my view is he didn't believe a word of his own case, and there was a sort of twinkle in his eye as he told it to me. Those are the only two people I have heard support it, whereas there is fear. My hairdresser is afraid. She says, what are they going to do to us in retaliation? Uh, Which is a good question. Okay, I'm going to sum up my show now. A.S. Byatt, you've finished your tetralogy. You're now free. You said you were working on a book about uh, historical elements of socialism? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm writing a kind of another possession, which is to be set between 1880 and the end of the 1418 war. And it's about people who write fairy stories and the sort of beginnings of socialism in Britain. People like George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells and the Fabian Society and all those people who wore sort of sandals and woolen clothes. And people like E. Nesbitt who wrote fairy stories. And I've been communicating with Jack Zipes, the great fairy story expert. And he said that fairy stories and socialism actually go together because socialists write fairy stories because they believe in utopia and they like that sort of a book and it's going to have fairy stories in it and it's going to have a lot of Germans in it because Germans were serious socialists unlike the British again the British never do anything very seriously but I've got very interested in as it were the the Karl Marx legacy and also in German fairy stories which are heavier and harder and have got a lot more steel in them than British ones. One other question Doris Lessing decided to write the ultimate metaphor, which is science fiction. And Margaret Atwood every so often veers off and writes science fiction. Have you given any thought to just writing a science fiction novel? Um, I couldn't write a science fiction novel for the odd reason that science fiction does tend to be either utopian or dystopian. And I'm not either. I'm, a, I'm an English liberal skeptic and we they tend not to write science fiction. I'm reading a lot of H.G. Wells, and it's making me feel quite ill. Um, What I have always wanted to do is write a Tolkien-like book, which isn't science fiction, but almost myth. I secretly would like to write a story set in a place, you know, with no motor cars and no no trains and a great conflict between good and evil. But as yet, I haven't found a language to do it in, and and I've got so much else that I do know how to do that I'm doing. The book A.S. Byatt describes at the end of the interview became the children's book in 2009. You've been listening to an interview with the late A.S. Byatt, who died on November 18, 2023, at the age of 87. It was recorded on January 27, 2003, in the KPFA studios, while she was on tour for her novel, a whistling woman. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. I'm Richard Walensky on the Bookwaves Art Waves Hour, and coming up now, the second theater review of the program. <laughs>